Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hi, Karen. How's it going? Really good. How are you? Good, good. So today our strategy has been to review the articles that Dr. Arthur Eidelman presented at the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine conference recently. Um, as you remember, he did that hit parade of the top 10 articles for the year. That was fascinating. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to get a quick review of some important studies. Yeah. So I guess we'll divide them up. And why don't why don't we go back and forth, and I'll start with mine. Uh, one study that he presented was done by an author named Bach, B-A-A-C-K, and others in the Journal of Perinatology in 2012, to determine the fatty acid levels in donor human milk in the, in the United States. As you and I both know, the, these long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, most known as DHA and ARA, so tocosohexanoic acid is DHA, and arachidonic acid is ARA, these are really important in the growth and development of neurologic tissue, such as the brain, eyes, nerves, etc., and the thing is that fetuses get a large dose of these fatty acids in the third trimester of pregnancy, which means that preterm infants miss out on that big load. So preterms are relatively deficient in these fatty acids. So that renders them more prone to long-term neurologic problems. The authors in this study wanted to see what the levels were of essential fatty acids in pasteurized bank donor milk. So first they looked at the effect of pasteurization and they found that pasteurizing donor humor milk doesn't have an effect on fatty acid levels, which was great news. Um, however, they found that the samples of donor milk that they received from different banks around the country showed that these fatty acid levels, these essential fatty acids, DHA and ARA, are actually pretty low in donor milk. And these samples were pooled milk. So each sample came from like five or six donors in each um, in each sample. They did find that the level of fatty acids were pretty consistent between the different specimens, which means that pooling the milk really does seem to be beneficial to make milk pretty homogeneous in the different samples, but it still is deficient. So their recommendations were to uh, at least to supplement preemies with um, both tocosohexanoic acid and with the arachidonic acid in order to increase their levels to optimize their uh, the fatty acids for brain development. In addition, one other thing is that they did look at the DHA and ARA in formula. They didn't look at the levels, and they didn't really compare directly with fresh milk from mothers. But on the other hand, they found that pasteurization didn't reduce these levels anyway. But in formula, the formula had higher levels, obviously, because they can just dump it into the formula. Yeah, and that's one of the, the things that they've done more recently is 
start adding that interdependent on which which one they use. Right. Although I don't think that there's any evidence that adding these fatty acids to formula has benefited babies neurologically. Because you know, and I have the same feeling about this study. I mean, I I totally understand the idea of, oh, maybe we should supplement these preemies, but I think having some other outcome measure in a future study would be important to see whether or not it's really making a difference for the babies. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I know that a lot of the moms in my community are instructed by their obstetricians to supplement with uh, DHA during pregnancy. And I know that some studies have been done looking at higher amounts of DHA and ARA in moms who do take supplementation. So this may be something that needs to be looked at more closely, whether moms who have premature infants need to take uh, more supplementation. The other thing is that there's a big difference in levels of DHA and ARA depending on maternal diet. So women who eat more seafood are going to have higher levels than women who don't. Yeah. So why don't we move on to something that you have? Okay. So um, the next study is one by Zagierski, and um, it was in the Journal of Perinatology in 2012. And it was maternal smoking decreases antioxidant status of human breast milk. In this study, they... um, took samples of mom's breast milk, actually first colostrum and then mature milk, as well as um, urine from moms and babies to try to um, look at the antioxidant levels in those and compared between moms who smoked five or more cigarettes a day to non-smokers. And the study showed that the breast milk from the smokers had lower levels of antioxidants. And antioxidants are um, chemicals that help protect us from um, molecules called free radicals. Free radicals are something which is produced when our body breaks down food or when it's exposed to chemicals like from smoking or radiation. And those free radicals can do damage um, inside the cells that go on to lead to heart disease and cancer. And so I thought this was really interesting because we know that breast milk is protective from some of those diseases. And so, and so seeing that um, those levels are lower in the breast milk of smoking moms is concerning. Absolutely, yeah. Breast, uh, smoking is so destructive in so many different ways. But nevertheless, babies who are breastfeeding, whose moms smoke, have a lower risk of sudden infant death and um, probably are still greatly protected from the respiratory diseases that they would otherwise be prone to if they weren't breastfeeding in a smoky house. I I always tell moms who are concerned about breastfeeding because they're smokers that, you know, no matter what food you're giving your baby, you're going to be right there and that sort of passive secondhand smoke will affect the baby the same and breast milk is protective even if it is not quite as protective as if the mom wasn't smoking. Right, absolutely, yeah. Which I, which is interesting. I found that with um, the studies that are done on environmental toxicology, that even though there are chemicals in breast milk um, from chemicals that are in mom's body, breastfed babies still are healthier. Mm-hmm. 
So, okay, well, I'll go on to another study. This was a study that was done by Ingram and uh, other researchers in the Archives of Diseases of Childhood in 2012. And the reason for this study was to compare the effect of domperidone and metoclopramide in increasing milk production among moms who have babies in the NICU. So they took 80 moms who were pumping for their babies who were on average about 28 weeks gestation. They didn't know if they were receiving metoclopramide or domperidone, which is great because we have very few randomized studies on this topic. Each dose, the dose for each medication was 10 milligrams three times a day. They measured milk production for 10 days before the intervention, 10 days of taking, during the 10 days that they took the medication, and for 10 days after. And they found that the moms in the domperidone group increased their milk production by 96%, and moms in the metoclopramide group increased by 93%. So really not a whole lot of difference. The moms who were taking metoclopramide had, um, they were more likely to have side effects. About 7 of 40 women and 3 out of 40 taking domperidone had side effects. So... I think we, many of us know as lactation consultants and like especially physicians who prescribe these medications that they do help to increase milk supply as long as all the other behavioral stuff is done, such as having a good hospital-grade pump, pumping regularly, and now with all the information about manual expression um, with pumping, we know that's important, mm-hmm. resting, sleeping, eating well, skin-to-skin, that these medications really can help to um, accentuate the benefits that you get from these other strategies. What's different about this study is that we have very few comparison studies between the medications, and we don't re- and we don't have very many randomized controlled trials. And so this adds to that information. Yeah, I found this study to be fascinating. I think that. I'm a little disappointed that they didn't have a placebo arm to the study. I think right. that um, that would have been helpful, especially because the difference between the two medications wasn't that significant. So it would have been nice to see, you know, what what the effect of placebo would have been relative to them. But it was a significant increase that the women saw. And also, I don't know about you, but I have used higher doses of um, dumb paradigm then the medical provider have Reglan. Yeah. So I've used higher doses of the domperidone. Um, and so I wonder, you know, there is some variability to dosing if they had had more women in the study, if they could have gone on and said, you know, with different doses, because I don't feel like there is enough research in this area um, because that was not that, that drug was not originally studied for that purpose. And so I think that there is there are more studies to be done. Yeah. I think the interesting thing about domperidone is that it's not FDA approved in this country. It did get approved for investigational use. And so there are some studies being done in order to bring it to the FDA for approval. And so so we don't have guidance in terms of dosing. And I know that Health Canada, I believe it was earlier this year, put out a statement saying that they recommend that nursing women have no more than 10 milligrams four times a day, which is the typical dose of the brand name Motilium that's used in Canada for domperidone. And the concern is that with higher doses, uh, that could prolong the QT interval. 
So when I'm using domperidone, because of the Health Canada statement, I have not been using more than 10 milligrams four times a day. And of course, I always screen women by asking verbally if they've ever had any cardiac conduction, conduction defects or a family history of something that would sound like long QT syndrome, such as sudden mm-hmm. death in a, in a young, young relative, or if they have other risk factors, like if they have a history of congestive heart failure or if they're taking other medications that could prolong the QT interval. Sometimes I'll even do an EKG. So, for example, if they're taking a tricyclic antidepressant, I'll do an EKG to look at the QT before adding on domperidone. So I'm nervous about doing more than 10 milligrams four times a day, especially. Well, that's, that's really interesting. And then yeah. my next question then is how long, because this is 10 days for each medication. And I know that I've had some patients who do very well with a short course, but others who find that when they wean the medication, they have a significant um, decrease in their supply, so they continue on it for longer periods. Right. Yeah, I think everyone's different, and I think it depends on their behaviors as well. So that through getting more milk, they may decide that they're going to pump more often, and then suddenly, you know, it takes longer to reach a plateau. But what I normally recommend is that women take it until they plateau for a good 10 days where they haven't increased any further, and then have them gradually drop a dose every four days. And I find that some women actually increase their supply again. If If their supply drops off, what I do is I have them go back on it for another three to four weeks and then try again to wean off. But you know what happens so often is that I find that women are looking for galactagogues at a time that's about one month before they're going back to work. So by the time they get their supply up with a galactagogue, then they're going back to work and they're weaning at the same time. So that's a whole other can of worms too. Yeah, so a lot of times I'll have them wait to wean down until they've had that steady state at work for at least, you know, three, four weeks. So yeah, yeah, we could probably talk about galactagogues for a long time. So do you want to share another study? So the next one that I want to talk about is um, by Dr. Nijman and his colleagues, and this was published this year, and it was called Postnatally Acquired CMV Infection in Preterm Infants, a Prospective Study on Risk Factors and Cranial Ultrasound Findings. And this is a really interesting study talking about a disease called CMV, and um Cytomegalovirus is a, a really common viral infection um, in the general population, and um, it is one that is seen not uncommonly in um, babies and premature babies are at higher risk. Um, according to this study, they, this study was done um, with 315 babies prospectively, and all of the babies were less than 32 weeks gestation. And they were specifically trying to determine which of the babies were um, infected with the virus after they were born. Because it is possible um, to get the virus while the baby is still in utero. And they can check um, when the baby's born, check their urine to see if there's any sign of infection, and um, then follow up to see whether or not they have signs of infection later on. They also did um, weekly head ultrasounds, and they did a hearing test on all of the babies before they were discharged from the hospital. And then they checked um, a few different risk factors, and they found that um, these babies were all fed fresh breast milk, which had not been pasteurized or frozen, 
and um, they found 39 of the 315 were positive for CMV um, in the study. Those babies that um, were positive, of the 39, six of them were ill clinically, um, but there were no deaths. They found that the majority of the infected infants were asymptomatic, um, that the, the risk factors for becoming infected with CMV were um, being given breast milk, and particularly if the babies were um, not native Dutch, or their mothers were not native Dutch. Um, this, this study was done in Denmark. So the big problem that I saw with the study was that they did not do serologic testing on the moms to see their CMV status. And so it was really interesting to see that being fed breast milk was more likely to be associated with um, getting the infection, but I think it's a little bit hard to say that um, the, the ethnicity of the moms was a factor when we don't know what percentage of the Danish moms had the disease to transmit versus those who were non-natives. Right, right, Yeah. So the takeaway message on that study is that even though these babies developed signs of CMV infection, they seemed fine at the time of discharge. Yeah, absolutely. And so when they did the head ultrasounds, they saw that babies had some calcifications of the lenticulostriate vessels, but that those did not seem to have any um, clinical effects that they could tell on the babies. Well, that's reassuring because yeah. cause we're always freaking out about CMV, which, of course, can be associated with sept- with a sepsis picture, right? Um, yeah. But in general, most babies tolerate it, and, you know, they're going to go home and be faced with CMV in the community when Uncle Joe comes over or Aunt, Hen- or Aunt Penny or someone else comes over. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've always been taught regarding CMV transmission regarding breast milk that the the vast majority of babies that are breastfed by moms who are CMV positive will be CMV positive but will not have any clinical signs. And right. we've only been more concerned about preemies. And so I think the study is really reassuring that even though there were signs and even calcification, you know, even though there was a positive test and there were even calcifications, these babies were clinically well. Yeah, that's reassuring. Okay, well, so I have a study that was done by Andres and other colleagues published in Pediatrics in 2012, and this was a study to compare the developmental outcomes in babies who were taking soy formula versus cow's milk-based formula. And what's really fascinating about this study is that they used breastfeeding babies as the norm, as the controls, which is so refreshing and unique because finally <laughs> we have research show we have research techniques using breastfeeding as the norm. So anyway, they were looking for differences between the two types of formula because we know that soy formula, soy in itself is a phytoestrogen. It's um, uh, it's a plant-based estrogen, and there are some other phytochemicals in there. And there's a question of whether or not these phytochemicals have an effect on development. So they looked at 391 healthy babies at 3, 6, 9, and 12 months and did developmental evaluations of them, largely using the Bailey, which is a common developmental tool. They did adjust for psychosocial factors, such as um, 
socioeconomic status, maternal age and IQ, diet history, and other factors, because we know so many of these factors play a role in development. What's interesting is that they did not find a difference in development between babies who are fed soy versus cow's milk-based formula. And generally, their scores were okay in the normal range. But babies who were breastfed, who were the breastfeeding controls, they scored higher than any of the formula-fed babies in at least three different measures of cognitive development. So the study pretty much confirmed what we've always known, which is that formula feeding has negative effect on uh, cognitive development. And uh, having soy formula does not make a difference, whether it's soy or or cosmic-based, when it comes to general um, development in, in babies. Yeah, and I, I have to say this is sort of reinforcing a lot of other studies that have been done before, but it is great to see breastfeeding considered normative. Yeah, and the last study that I present... Um, well, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that based on another study, too. All right. Before we get to that, I want to talk just quickly about the study um, that was in pediatrics in 2011 by Burick, and it was talking about the efficacy of neonatal release of ankyloglossia. Um, and once again, I, we had talked in a previous podcast about a study that was on phrenotomy or clipping tongue tie, and they were looking specifically at relieving nipple pain and increasing ability to breastfeed. And so um, this was a randomized, single-blinded study comparing um, phrenotomy to a sham operation. And this was, um, it was a small study. There were 30 babies that had phrenotomy and 28 that had the sham operation. And they used um, the Hazel Baker score for tight tongue to judge whether or not there was ankyloglossia a McGill pain score, and a latched score, um, the IBLAT latched score. And they um, essentially found that the babies that had the intervention had a decrease in their pain scores immediately after having the surgery done, and there was not a significant change in the control group. And this is just one more study on the evidence that shows that when there is documented um, tongue tie that this intervention is effective. I found that um, it was helpful, but like uh, most of the other studies that have been done in this, the babies who initially had the sham operation, all but one went on and had the real operation. Um, these ones by two weeks of age. And so it is it does limit the ability to follow up the groups later on and see if there are any differences between them. But um, I thought it was a well-done study, and it does show that it does help pain. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it seems like it would be almost cruel and unethical to tell a mother that you're not going to clip a baby's tongue, you know? Absolutely. I mean, there's certainly studies that we wish we had the data that we will never do. Um, Right. Right. It's just a limitation of doing ethical research. I'd still rather them do ethical research. But there still are the skeptics out there, and that's why the study is important. Because I think, you know, obviously you and I agree that clipping a tongue is, oh, yeah, it's just obvious. But there are others out there who don't have that experience, and clearly research is, is important. So, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about manual expression of breast milk. And I think we all, those of us in the breastfeeding world, have heard a lot about this. We know from studies that manual expression is very important for moms who have 
premature infants, these moms tend to have a threefold increased risk of not making enough milk, and manual expression seems to make a difference in terms of milk volumes. The researcher in this particular study is Dr. Jane Morton, and this is published in the Journal of Perinatology in 2012. In this study, she sought to see if there was a difference in milk composition by adding manual expression, so not just changes in volume. She followed 67 women for eight weeks and once a week took a sample of their milk. These were moms who had premature infants in the NICU, and she asked each mom to follow her hands-on pumping regimen, which if you've ever seen the video, you can go to the Stanford website, and, and if you Google Stanford hands-on pumping, you can find a short video that anyone can watch for free on hands-on pumping. But it essentially involves having a woman double pump and at some point either double pumping hands-free, adding manual expression to the pumping, or alternatively double pumping and then manually expressing afterwards either with the pump on one side or without the pump, just manual expressing. So there are various ways of doing this. She divided the moms into three groups based on how often they ended up doing manual expression. They all pumped around the same frequency, but she wanted to see, so first she wanted to see how much milk they were expressing by eight weeks postpartum, even though that was not the main goal of the study. This was really to confirm what she has shown before. And she found that the group of women who seemed to manually express the least, anywhere from zero to two times a day, expressed about 650 milliliters per day on average at eight weeks. The group that did manual expression two to five times a day expressed about 200 milliliters more than that, so about 859 milliliters per day at eight weeks. And the group that manually expressed more than five times a day had the highest volumes at about 955 milliliters per day at eight weeks. What she found in looking at the nutrition, the, the nutritive properties of the milk, she found that manual expression significantly, significantly increased the fat content of the milk. So the number of calories went up in the milk samples. But interestingly, the, the protein fraction went down. So her hypothesis was that by manually expressing milk, you're milking out that really rich, creamy milk that sits maybe in the corners of those very distant, deeply set alveoli um, mm -hmm. that the pump would never reach because if it's thicker and more viscous, it's, it's probably not going to respond as much to just the negative pressure that a pump provides. And that just intuitively makes sense when you're trying to take water out of a sponge, you know, you can you can apply negative pressure, but what you really want to do is squeeze it and get everything out. And that's essentially what she's showing. I love that so, visual. Yeah, really. So, yeah, so I thought that was good. Um, I don't know what to make about the, the reduction in protein, but um, it's a small study. So. Yeah, and what I didn't quite get from reading it was that, you know, it's decreasing the protein concentration, but because there's a greater volume was it a, was it less total protein in the day? Yeah, I got the impression that that's what she was saying, is that there's less protein per day. Um, and we know that protein is more important for growth of premature infants than fat in, in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Calories, of course, are important too, but it's the protein that really makes the difference with growth. Yeah, and like the study you were talking about earlier with DHA, it's one of the things that preterm babies are deficient in because they didn't have that 
time to acquire protein in the third trimester when they're supposed to be getting it through the placenta. Right, right. So more to learn, but obviously manual expression makes a huge difference with increasing volume. So we definitely want to be talking that up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, So discussing more um, weight gain in the babies, the the next study I wanted to talk to was Roadway and colleagues um, and in the Archives of Pediatric Adolescent Medicine um, in 2012 they published a study which was called Risk of Bottle Feeding for Rapid Weight Gain During the First Year of Life. And this was a longitudinal study. Um, It was a male study done by the CDC of 3,000 infants who were greater than 35 weeks gestation, evaluating different patterns of feeding. So just breastfeeding, breastfeeding plus giving express breast milk by bottle, breastfeeding feeding and giving formula, all expressed breast milk by bottle, and formula only by bottle. And comparing these different groups, looking at their weight. So the um, researchers corrected for a variety of factors like maternal age, education, ethnicity, income, marital status, WIC participation, birth weight, sex, and introduction of solids. And when they looked at the mean weights, they found that the breastfed infants had the lowest weights, followed by those with breastfeeding and express breast milk, then breastfeeding and formula feeding, then all express breast milk in a bottle, and finally um, those given all formula by a bottle. And what's interesting about this is that any breastfeeding lowered the weight. So even if you were given all breast milk versus formula, it mattered whether it was at the breast or in the bottle. Mm-hmm. And once they got to more than 50 or 60% of um, breast milk feeds via bottle, weight gain would increase. And um, it was concluded that bottle feeding is an independent risk factor associated with increased weight gain. Um, and expressed breast milk was better than formula for weight gain, but... The theory is that breastfeeding helps with self-regulation as well as the the hormonal um, contributions of breast milk, such as leptin and adenopectin. Yeah, I, so, ever, since I saw, ever since I saw this study, um, I've been watching my, my families in my office and observing when they're bottle feeding what they do when the baby starts to pull away from the bottle. And oftentimes they'll burp the baby, put the baby back down, and the baby doesn't show any interest in wanting to feed anymore. But they'll just, like, put the bottle around the lips, get the baby to root, put it back in, kind of cajole the baby to finish that bottle. And I'm beginning to understand this more and more, that we really do, that mothers sort of have a thing about, let's finish the bottle, let's get this done. This is how much you normally take. Like cleaning our plates when we were kids. Yeah, like take it like when the kid who's you know sort of transitioning from from uh, from purees to solids and they're sitting at the table and they're not eating. Mom will pick mm-hmm. up the food, stick it in their mouth, you know, kind of try to really get them to like stuff it in before they're done. And whereas with breastfeeding, they come off, you put them back to the breast, and they're it's going to be very difficult to get them to latch on. A bottle is so much 
easier to stimulate the palate and get them to feed. Push it in their mouth. Exactly. Yeah. Dump the bottle upside down. We all swallow whatever's in our mouth. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Even though these babies will. Yeah. So yeah, fascinating. This this uh, this didn't surprise me, but it made me think more about that study we had talked about previously about bottle feeding and pyloric stenosis, and the question of how much of it was the bottle and how much of it was the formula. And uh, it's, it's a really interesting question yeah. that I'm sure we're going to see more on in the future. Absolutely, yeah. So the last study that I have to share is by an author named Kim and Associates, which was published in 2011 in the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry, which was about breastfeeding and brain activation to one's own infant's cry and maternal sensitivity. So... We often talk about breastfeeding having the benefit of promoting the mother-baby bond, which is which we believe is good for the baby's social and emotional development. So it makes sense to believe that moms will fall will fall more in love with their babies if they have that close feeding relationship. According to the authors of this study, there has been work done looking at functional MRIs, which are MRIs that are done during activity, to identify the area of the human brain that light up in response to maternal behavior. So they can find parts of the brain that are associated with certain things that we do, which is almost haunting. (laughs) Yeah. So they wanted to see the association between breastfeeding and mom's brain response to infant stimuli and then her sensitivity to that baby later on postpartum. So this was a small study. They took nine women who were breastfeeding and eight women who were formula feeding. And sometime during that first month, between two and four weeks postpartum, they did functional MRIs on on the women's brains to see how their brains responded when they heard their own infant cry and when they heard a control infant cry, so a cry that they would not recognize. And they found that the breastfeeding mom's brains lit up in several areas of the brain more so when they heard their own babies than when they heard the control babies. And these are parts of the brain that are known from previous studies to be important for caregiving behavior. For formula-fed babies, there was no difference in brain activity when they heard their own babies versus control babies, which I think was pretty astounding. That's amazing. Yeah. Then they videotaped these moms at three to four months and just videotaped maternal interactions with their babies. And they had a way of scoring maternal sensitivity, which was, uh, which was uh, they used tools that were already uh, validated. And they found that there was a correlation with the pattern of brain activity seen on MRI in the first month with measures of maternal sensitivity at three, and four, and three to four months. So the more that these caregiving brain areas lit up in the first month, the more sensitive mom was to her baby at three to four months. So as you can expect, the breastfeeding moms exhibited a trend towards higher maternal sensitivity than moms who are infant feeding, which correlates with the fact that moms had this higher um, brain activation. So the authors point out that um, the importance of maternal sensitivity at three to four months is that maternal sensitivity can have an effect on cognitive, social, emotional, and moral development for infants through childhood and, and especially through adolescence. I found this just to be really fascinating. I think partly because I spend so much time thinking about these other types of things, you know, viruses and weight gain that are really easy to measure. Yeah. 
it's just so fascinating to see these long-term effects on our brain and the, the sense of control we have is sort of false and that so much of biology is controlling not just our weight gain, but our the way that our brain works is just really interesting. Right. And the authors made mention that it's not quite clear where the causal relationship is. That So we know that oxytocin, for example, has plays a major role in how our brains function. And, and women who are nursing have many oxytocin releases during nursing, and women who are not breastfeeding don't. But I would say it is it probably is something that we could share with mothers to tell them that bonding has been shown to be greater and their sensitivity to their babies may be greater and they may be better parents if they're breastfeeding. So that's a lot That's a lot to lay on a family who doesn't yeah, have enough say, I don't know if I'm going to go there with my patients. I think they're... It's a hard one, but certainly for moms who... Stressed out about whether or not it's going to be working. Right, I know. Yeah, it's one more. Yeah, it would have to be balanced, really, with yeah. the whole guilt issue. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the last study that I wanted to talk about was actually um, a study in the American Society for Nutrition in 2012 um, by Jonathan Wells and his colleagues, and it was called Randomized Controlled Trial of Four Compared with Six Months of Exclusive Breast Milk in Iceland, Differences in Breast Milk Intake by Stable Isotope Probe. And this study was done to evaluate um, exclusive um, breastfeeding in infants for six months relative to those who had complementary food started at four months. And it was a prospective study where they randomized um, dyads into two groups, those who were um, continuing to exclusively breastfeed and those who began complementary foods after four months. And they they used um, deuterium, which is a stable isotope, to measure um, how much breast milk the babies were getting, since obviously we often tell our patients, oh, I wish the breast had a full empty gauge. I can't tell you right. exactly how much you know they're getting, although right. we sometimes try to figure it out with scales and things. But this is a really accurate way to measure so that they could figure out whether or not the babies who were um, getting complementary foods were getting additional calories or whether it was substituting for breast milk. And they essentially found that exclusively breastfed babies were able to um, drink more milk than those who had complementary foods. The foods were replacing breast milk and that um, they had very similar caloric intake and similar um, measurements of their body composition at the end of the study. Well, So that was really interesting when we were trying to... just advise parents, especially when there is concern for how babies growing, about whether or not they should start foods to help. I think this is really um, good evidence for us to say, you know, you're not adding anything by starting those foods earlier. Yeah, and I would argue, and I wish the study had talked more about this, that it's detrimental because when you think about the solids that babies start early on, it's a lot of vegetables, cereals, but no protein and no fat. So, yeah, absolutely. so, so it's we're taking not helping with the things they're deficient in. Exactly. So it's not ideal for growth, and I tell parents that this takes away from the optimal amount of fat and fat and protein 
um, the best calories that a baby can get by adding solids into early. And unfortunately, I think many of our colleagues will tell families who have very small babies when the babies are breastfeeding, oh, just add some solids, that'll help, because their suspicion yeah. is their suspicion is that the baby's just not that there isn't enough milk in those breasts. And I would yeah. argue that that's a very that's a, that's a very bad idea. And if they think that mom's milk supply is low, they should evaluate that. Absolutely. And I think this goes along with all of the studies that show us that the benefits of breast milk are dose dependent. And so anything that decreases the amount of breast milk decreases that benefit, which protects from so many diseases, as well as the nutritional benefits. Right. And I think that one of the arguments that the World Health Organization made for the recommendation that babies start solids at six months is that babies who start solids earlier have an increased risk of colds and diarrhea, which would make sense, right, mm-hmm. from what you're saying about uh, the relative amount of uh, breast milk being uh, lower for for that yeah, group. Absolutely. So, yeah. Babies are really smart. I mean, this there's a there's a study some time ago that showed that um, when premature babies are given formulas of different caloric density, the babies that had higher calorie, this was a study done with formula, but babies that had higher calorie formulas drank less. They were able to self-regulate in the mm-hmm. study and ended up essentially, like this study, taking the same total number of calories. So babies are, are smart. They know when they're hungry and when they need more energy. And so we can you know, try to trick them, I guess, by altering their diet, but I think they're still going to self-regulate. And yeah. we should be mindful of what's the most healthy, nutritious option for them. And right, right. You and I agree. Breast milk. Yes. Breast milk, right? Great. Well, that was fun. It was a long podcast, but hopefully, you know, people can listen to it in chunks. And um, I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Sounds great. Bye. Bye. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy f as in frank med dot org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.